it in your eyes Take me out to cafe binge tonight Be the beauty, sense the beauty everywhere worldwide Take me out to cafe binge tonight Hello and welcome to the Cafe Binge Podcast. You guys, today I am so excited about our guest on the show. We are going to be talking about something that I've wanted to talk about for a really long time, but I wanted to wait for her to be on the show first. I want to talk about eating disorders, disordered eating, body image issues, and finally, intuitive eating. And today's guest, I would consider, is an expert about this subject. Um, She is a licensed clinical therapist. She also does um, lots of clinical research at a doctorate level. She literally is one of the most knowledgeable and just wisest persons I've ever talked to. I wish that each and every one of you could sit in with her and just talk to her and ask her questions because she's a wealth of wisdom. So today I am going to talk to her all about eating disorders, disordered eating, intuitive eating, body image issues, and I'm so excited for you guys to meet Liz. So let's get to the show. You guys, on the show today, I have the biggest treat in the whole world because I have the coolest guest on today, and she's my sister, Liz. (laughs) (laughs) But for real, though, I feel like Liz is my most favorite person. She's my person, and I feel like for my whole life, she's been my biggest bragging, right? (laughs) For real, though, I feel like if you know me in my personal life, like if you were ever one of my clients or one of my friends, and you didn't personally know my family, you definitely heard about my sister Liz because I talked about her all the time. (laughs) Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Well, it's true. It definitely is true. I feel like she's the person. Honestly, so my sister got married in... December and I was supposed to give a toast at her wedding and I had this most amazing toast planned and then for some reason we didn't do toast that night. I wish I would have had my toast written out in front of me right now because I would have said it because she's just wonderful and the smartest person I've ever met and has the best heart and is just wise and intelligent and has done everything in the whole world. Like if if you could imagine in your head the most well-balanced, accomplished person, that's the person sitting here right now. <laughs> so, that's, I don't know if that's entirely true. No, just as an alibi, I certainly have a lot of my own self-work that I can. I need um, to be doing too. No, I mean, I guess everyone can, but <laughs> the most progressed people, um, you're at the top of the list. So, today, <laughs> we're going to be talking about something that I think is very important um, among women and just in just today's society, I think in general, very important. So I want to talk to Liz about eating disorders and disordered eating because she worked in this field for how many years, Liz? I guess I started, uh, within disordered eating, I really started in grad school, uh, which I attended in, uh, 2008, 2010. So really since then. 
Okay, so give us a little bit of background about your, yeah, your background in working with eating disorders. After grad school, what did you do? What type of work did you do? Well, right after grad school, I deployed to Iraq. That's right. So you guys, she did it all. <laughs> um, and certainly, I had a lot of evidence of disordered eating among soldiers as well that I observed um, that was really? really obvious to me. Yeah, it's among really men? common. Uh, yeah, uh, among women and men in the military. In fact, I think the Army specifically um, generates a lot of disordered eating among, so- among soldiers because one of the things they do to create stress in intensive training environments, specifically schools like Ranger School or Selection for Special Forces, uh, they reduce uh, the, the amount of calories that soldiers get to consume. And so a lot of soldiers that I've talked to emerge from these schools, one, emaciated after they finish school, but two, um, with a lot of disordered thoughts and behaviors around food. Weird. Yeah. So certainly within the military, I've, I've observed that a lot. Um, while I was in grad school, I was working at a weight loss camp. It was an adventure camp in Asheville, right. North Carolina. If you guys have seen heavyweights, that's where she worked. <laughs> in kind fact, of. it was called Camp Hope. <laughs> <laughs> and among these kids that I was working with, I observed obviously a lot of disordered eating too, um, but not just in terms of overeating or binge eating, but um, a lot of classically recognized disordered eating behaviors as well. Um, so I started to think about it then and also started to think about how our approach at this camp maybe was also uh, contributing to the to the, the development of some of those disordered eating behaviors as kind well. Kind of like shame, yeah, shame-based absolutely. eating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and certainly a lot or... of uh, stigma related to uh, weight. Right. Um, just the embodiment that we sometimes um, that like push. Fat, fat is bad and skinny is better. Absolutely. Like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, which is that? Uh, I just have a question about that. Would um, most of the time with these kids at this camp, would their parents send them there, or did they want to be there? Um, a little bit of both, but generally speaking, mostly driven by parents. A lot of these kids came from really wealthy families. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the parents that I was interacting with weren't necessarily obese themselves, um, but they, in a lot of cases, were fairly absent parents, um, not as involved. Which is sad um, because that's maybe why the kids were overweight or had absolutely, weight issues. Absolutely. Like anytime, what was going any, on at home. Absolutely. Anytime you work with kids in therapy, teenagers in therapy, um, if you're not approaching um, your work with that, with that client in a systems way, like looking at the family system they are emerging from, um, you're not going to make any headway. Certainly not any lasting changes. Um, are going to be made. Um, so a lot of what we did, we did do some family therapy, but I, from my perspective, I don't think we were doing enough to be able to ha- help these kids to sustain any of their um, changes to their uh, health or eating behaviors. Right. Okay. So after? So after I returned from Iraq, then I was looking for a job as a therapist because um, I just finished grad school. And I knew that I wanted to work in um, the eating disorder field. Uh, in part because of some experiences that I, that I had uh, when I was younger growing up with um, a teacher who had had an eating disorder and was pretty open about it. And I, I'd just been curious about it since then. Um, I didn't experience um, a diagnostic eating disorder. Really, I haven't experienced that at any point in my life. I've certainly engaged in disordered eating behaviors myself, so I have some um, understanding of that personally. Um, but I knew I wanted to work in the field in part because I was really interested in this like um, mind-body connection. Yes. And that's always really fascinated me. Totally. So how long did you work at? 
So I started working right after I got from got back from Iraq in 2011, and then I worked um, at this eating disorder hospital where we have um, inpatient, residential, outpatient, intensive outpatient, outpatient care. Um, so uh, across all levels of care, uh, we treat people with eating disorders. And certainly in that context, I worked with individuals um, in outpatient therapy who didn't have eating disorders, um, just other variety of um, like either relational or mental health dis- disorders as oh, well. Oh, interesting. So I, I did like, uh, you know, like couples therapy and that kind of thing too. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I guess um, in talking about these issues, I want to talk a little bit about eating disorders, but also just disordered eating. So what is the clinical criteria for an eating disorder? Uh, so one of the things that you see that has changed from, we have a diagnostic statistical manual um, which we use to classify or diagnose uh, anything, any disorder. Uh, so we had a fairly recent change of going from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5. And one of the things that we saw within eating disorders um, in that change from DSM-4 to 5 was basically a lowering of threshold. Uh, so for example, when you think about something like anorexia, one of the criteria uh, for meeting that was a specific uh, weight, that threshold that they needed to be under uh, to meet um, the diagnostic criteria for uh, anorexia, rather than just a significantly low bo- body weight, which right. it is now, or um, restrictive eating patterns. One of the other things used to be amenorrhea, which is you know the, the loss of your menstrual cycle, which obviously didn't apply to um, men. And some of the ways that you saw the building of eating disorder classifications, in fact, it was a very uh, gendered way of looking at some of those things too. So right. um, I don't know if you want me to go through each eating disorder in those criteria. Yeah. I think that's certainly something that you, um, I mean, if we see big distinctions between uh, anorexia and bulimia, the, the big distinction really there is um, binging behaviors and right. then compensatory behaviors. So that could be purging. Um, so just like also like working out a ton after. Yeah, or... absolutely. So it could just be purging the weight um, or the excess calories through exercise as well or through laxative abuse. Um, if you're working with somebody who has diabetes, it could just be manipulating their insulin levels. So that's a diabolemic. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that you can look at um, those compens- compensatory behaviors. Um, and then obviously binge eating disorder where we just see binging behaviors with no compensatory behaviors. Um, and then there's, um, a lot of, uh, uh, clients you see who don't meet those, uh, diagnostic, uh, thresholds. And so there's other categories that they can fit into other diagnoses that they can meet instead. Uh, one of the ones that's interesting that I've encountered is, uh, avoidant restrictive, um, eating behaviors, um, RFID is the actual, uh, diagnosis. But, uh, one of the things we see there are more classic, um, uh, childhood disordered eating. Um, so you might see a kid who is only willing to eat a very small range of food. Because they're um, picky or because they don't want to get fat or like... No, no. ARFID is not tied to uh, fears of gaining weight. Okay. That would be more restrictive eating tied to anorexia. So okay. with anorexia, one of the criteria is uh, fear of weight gain. Okay. And that's not present in um, ARFID. But um, you do see this... this is an interesting one. One of the, I had a friend actually uh, when I was in on active duty in the military, and her brother um, throughout you know even into his adult life uh, was 
basically just eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know? That was, like, his <laughs> diet. Um, For all three meals. Yeah, yeah. He always had this really restrictive eating pattern. Um, so, and there's things that you see like that. Or you, you might be familiar with kids who, you know, their range of what they're willing to eat Chicken is really narrow. And, and, that's, and that's common yeah. for a lot of kids, right? But when it, when it becomes, like, really rigid, that's when we start to see it becoming more disordered, right? Okay. Like, there's, rigid in that, like, they won't, like, what do you mean by rigid? That um, they, for example, I had a client like who, I mean, hers, hers progressed into her adult life, too, and she would get, um, I mean, she'd experience a lot of anxiety when she had to eat something that wasn't within her small range of mm-hmm. um, comfort, com- comfortable foods, um, things that were out of her comfort zone, um, and she would get sick, I mean, she would physically vomit, uh, she'd had really significant um uh, social anxiety because of this. Like if she had to go any place that was serving food that she wasn't um, okay with. So it started to interfere with her functioning socially um, and in work environments as well. So when you start to see these uh, functioning issues, that's where we start to recognize it as being more disordered. Um, that is becoming an obstacle for them to live their life, right? Okay. Um, and, then, and then there's uh, diagnoses that t- aren't technically... Um, recognized yet within the dsm-5 something like orthorexia which is um basically obsession with healthy eating um and you might see this even among people that you encounter often at you know i mean anywhere really online um but even you know within the gym if you are familiar with i don't know if have you been to any CrossFit gyms or some things like that? No, I've never been a CrossFitter. <laughs> no, never. Um, sometimes within that community, they get really uh, hyper-focused and obsessed with uh, what they're consuming mm-hmm. uh, to the point that it's a lot of what they think about. It's a lot of what their day uh, revolves around. Um, anyway, so uh, again, the way that we assess when it tips over into so- disordered is, uh, again, this functioning, uh, social um, cognitive, also emotional functioning, um, and then just like life activities, things like that. Um, so, um, orthorexia or just compulsive exercise, you know, sometimes we, we view that one more positive, those two more positively, right? We, we applaud people for those behaviors. We think Mm -hmm. of that as being really good and that they have so much self-discipline. Totally. So there's a lot of positive feedback. That's true for some eating disorders too. When you switch from anorexia to bulimia, a lot of times clinically, once uh, a client shifts from having anorexia to bulimia, that's really helpful because there's more shame connected to bulimia. So there's more willingness to want to change the behavior. Sometimes when, growing up and that's, that's right. like gross to people or what? So, yeah, exactly. So sometimes, sometimes there's um, more... There's, there's, there's less social acceptance of bulimia versus anorexia. A lot of times for anorexia, they're getting so much positive feedback, they feel no desire or need to change those behaviors, Wait, even though... positive feedback because, like, you look so skinny, or positive feedback about what? Like, yeah, what or they... you are so disciplined. Like, it's someone else who feels like they can't control themselves around food sees somebody who has so much control uh, around food and, like, and thinks, wow. That bag of cookies isn't even messing with you right now. Yeah, right, I right, exactly. Yeah. So that positive feedback... Um, does affect motivation for change, even though the the functioning can be equally impaired with both um, uh, diagnoses, and the negative health effects can be just as damaging for both as well. Interesting. So I, it, so I think that's important. And with orthorexia and uh, compulsive exercise, we see that too. Like it can it can be just as damaging. You know, you think of somebody who potentially let's let's say for example you have a 
an ultra marathon runner or something like yes. that, right? Where mm-hmm. there's so much positive feedback for for having that kind of you know stamina and discipline, um, dedication, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but it can it sometimes, and I'm not saying it is for everybody. I'm not saying somebody who runs ultra marathons has this compulsive exercise disorder. Um, there's a lot of ways that we uh, have to be able to um, classify and diagnose that. Um, but if, if you're physically damaging your body, um, certainly that tips into disordered, right? Right. When it starts to interfere with your uh, family, your relationships, with your work, uh, those kinds of things. Um, again, when it tips over into impairing functioning, that's where we start to see things as becoming disordered. So there's a wide range of types of um, eating disorders, um, as far as the diagnostic classification goes. So I guess for those listening who maybe feel like they have some disordered eating but are wondering if they have a full-blown, like, eating disorder and, like, they need help, what do you feel like is a good rule of thumb or, like, a checklist to know whether or not they need help or... From my perspective, um, disordered eating is incredibly common. I, I would I would think that most most people have some kind of disordered eating behaviors um, to include moralization of the food choices that we make right that can become really disordered Um, it changes the way that our bodies handle and store food uh, when we make judgments about the food that we eat or ourselves for eating that food right Um, Right. and it's tricky right because there's conscientious consumption so if you think of somebody who um, is trying to make uh, conscientious choices related to not eating um, animals or animal products, right? right. Um, the, so motivation for what we're doing matters, actually. Um, it, it, it does change how our bodies handle the food that we're eating, how those behaviors then change how our bodies metabolize um, those cap, uh, calories, which we can talk about as we go forward. Um, so I guess what's the biggest difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating? A diagnostic threshold. So you could be sub sub uh, threshold and still have significant impairments in functioning. In fact, uh, one of the problems with the DSM is that we, we like to create these neat little categories of diagnoses, uh, but that's not how th- that's not the lived experience of people with eating disorders. The the lived experience of people with eating disorders is that they move across categories across the life of their disorders sometimes, um, or they might not be meeting the criteria for an eating disorder at one point. Right, like you were saying, like, they didn't weigh as, like, right, like the anorexia, right. like, weight limit or whatever. Like, you don't, you weigh too much to have this, like, full-blown eating disorder or whatever. That's right. right? So they could just be sub-threshold. And that's tricky from a treatment perspective because they're not going to meet um, criteria for uh, author- authorization for care or treatment, right? Right. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate reality of our healthcare system right now. Um, is that these neat little categories that we create, while useful in some ways, um, don't actually match the reality of what we see clinically on the ground, right? Um, so uh, disordered eating is sub-threshold, um, sub-sub-threshold behavior that we that we still see impairing functioning, right? Um, and I don't know if we'll get into this at some point, but I, I also like to help... Um, a lot of the clients that I work with to understand that when we're talking about eating disorders as an addiction or disordered eating behaviors as being addictive in nature, um, one of the things that I think is important to understand is that when we're talking about disordered eating or eating disorders or addictions broadly, any kind of addiction, it's not uh, a moral judgment. It's not that we're saying this behavior is bad. 
um, for any kind of arbitrary reasons. What we're saying is that uh, these behaviors have an effect. They have an effect on how your body's working. They have a, they have an effect on how your mind is working, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they become disordered, uh, one of the things that we can know, uh, one of the clear lines, I think, is when we're using food, either overeating food or staying away from food or changing the types of food that we're eating, but our eating behaviors, when we're using our eating behaviors to get away from feeling distress, that's when we're tipping over into compulsive eating, um, and that's when it starts to become uh, disordered. Uh, Because anything that we do compulsively uh, changes the way that our reward processing system works in our brain. Um, and that starts to change our capacity, not just for regulating our emotions, but actually for being able to access, um, our positive emotions. So what tends to happen as our brains change is that if you were to imagine that previous to engaging in compulsive eating, you have this like baseline where your body tends to be emotionally. Yeah. Um, what starts to happen when you engage in compulsive behaviors where you're trying to get away from feeling something you don't like, um, what starts to happen is that we use behaviors uh, to activate our body's endogenous opioid system. So if you think about anything that you use to get a surge of pleasure, I mean, what are some examples of that for you? What do you use to get pleasure? Hmm. I mean, I feel like that's changing. Like as I maybe go down my own little spiritual pathway. But I feel like in the past, like shopping or like watching a TV show or um, meeting up with friends or um, meeting up with family or dancing to music or getting a treat, like things like that. Going to get a soda, like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So all of those things, all of those things are fine, right? Like we get these, we, we, we use these behaviors to activate our own endogenous opioid system. Sometimes behaviors are accompanied by external um, surges as well. So it could be something like, uh, you know, sugar, sugar actually does make us feel good. And part of that um, is the sugar itself. There's, you know, things within that that can help us to feel better. Um, but our own endogenous opioid system is actually, actually activated as well. So we're getting um, this dual um, access to our reward processing system. Um, so that works also with um, external substances, right? So if we're using some kind of drug, um, your body's endogenous opioid system is activated then as well. So you have these external opioids potentially that you're introducing to your body and your own endogenous opioid system is uh, getting activated as so well. it's like twice right? to feel good. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but one of the things that happens when your body is flooded with these uh, feel-good chemicals, right, is that uh, our body likes what's called homeostasis, right? We like to maintain this balance. Yeah. And so when you have this surge, your body, your body functions to bring that back down to baseline, right? Okay. And that's helpful, actually, right? Because if you're staying surged, you would imagine that, um, that your body can't tolerate that for very long, right? Uh, so you surge and your body brings you down to baseline, right? Right. And if you're surging a lot, so if you start to use something in a compulsive way, um, and, 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 I want to be clear, too, that there's a distinction between impulsive behaviors, which is you looking to um, 
to get a feeling that you want to have, right? You're seeking pleasure, right? Yeah. Compulsive behaviors are when you're seeking to relieve distress, right? You're seeking to get away from something. Interesting. So when you start shifting from impulse, these patterns of impulsivity to patterns of compulsivity, uh, these patterns of compulsivity start to alter the way that your reward processing system works. And so um, there's a lot of ways that this happens, and I don't know how technical we want to get, um, but it does physically alter your brain and it physically alters your brain in such a way that when it brings you back down to baseline, one of the ways that it does that is it changes, it, it physically changes uh, the size um, of those uh, receptors and producers, right? So uh, if we think about our endogenous opioid system, when you're overactivating it, your body, those receptors to those chemicals are saying, wait, like too much, you're producing too much, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it sends the stop signal, but because your brain itself isn't controlling what it's producing, your behaviors are, um, it can't it can't alter that unless it physically changes the size um, of those structures within your brain. And so it changes that size. And what happens when that occurs is your capacity to maintain your previous baseline is no longer the same. So it's like a drug. This is exactly that's right. Yeah. So then your your baseline goes from this mid level to a lower level. Okay. And so what happens when people have been, so been engaging like these compulsive? That's right. Yeah. But but that's but this this is now a stable point for them. So now. They use these same behaviors they were using before to feel good, to get higher, right? Yeah. But now they're using them just to feel normal, right? Because their baseline has lowered uh, because the physical changes that have occurred in their brain have changed their capacity for the previous baseline. Now they use those same behaviors just to feel like they can maintain, just to feel normal, right? Yeah. So what's happening when those patterns of compulsivity continue is that your brain physically changes. And so when I encounter somebody who has a diagnostic eating disorder, it's really rare. Um, in fact, I've never encountered it where you don't also encounter depression and anxiety. Interesting. And that's because of what's happened to the changes within your brain, right? Okay. So it's not us just saying the way that you're approaching your food is disordered and wrong, right? This isn't it's a that moral it's judgment. Your body. That's right. Yeah, it's the, altered. That's right. The way your body is functioning. Yeah, exactly. Would you say, I just had a question about this because you were talking about impulsive versus compulsive. Like, would you say that all eating disorders or disordered and disordered eating are the result of compulsive? behavior of like that running away from something like no eating disorder is because you're impulsively does that make sense you're impulsively eating something you're running towards this like this like pleasure like even uh, like ultimately I would say yes that's where the path leads sometimes in the beginning stages it doesn't always start there Um, but there was a um, Kube. So Kube has this allostatic model of addiction, and he talks about how these patterns of impulsivity naturally lead to patterns of compulsivity. And one of the reasons for that is if you can imagine that you're using impulsivity to like stay high, yeah. then it starts to be that when you're naturally coming down, you start to need to uh, want to <laughs> need to get back to the place you were before. Yeah, because you feel right? that low crash, and that's you're right. like, I don't want to feel this anymore. Right. So, so then, then he talks about compulsive. Yeah. That's right. So he talks about how withdrawal from those high points of pleasure does become something that we compulsively um, react to. Right. Okay. So these patterns naturally move us towards compulsivity. Um, so maybe potentially, if you're counting, encountering somebody in the early stages of you know, some kind of emotional eating or binge eating behaviors, it might just initially be impulsive, but those patterns of impulsivity naturally lead to patterns of compulsivity. Okay. So in this process of like 
running away from things, this compulsivity, where does the moralization of food fit in with that? Like the deeming of one food, like food good and the other bad or like where does that fit into this? So that creates distress, right? So when you moralize your food choices, we experience distress. We experience either, you know, internal and internalized shame, um, uh, that judgment. Um, it could be that we experience, um, I mean, distress, we can think of pretty broadly. It's a range of negative emotions. Um, but if we're unwilling to tolerate our negative emotions, um, and push back against it, we're distress intolerant. Um, that, feed so many of our compulsive behaviors and we can be compulsive about anything right this doesn't have to be about food um this could be you know we could compulsively shop we could compulsively use our phone and check instagram feeds right we could compulsively um use pornography we could compulsively i mean none of those things i feel like are inherently bad right right but they become that's right they become unhelpful and they they change our brains based on how we use those things, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that, I mean, that's my perspective about it. And, and addiction, it, this isn't a moral judgment, right? This right. is us recognizing that the way that you are avoiding your distress is actually changing the way that your brain is working, which is creating a lot of other problems for you emotionally, uh, cognitively, um, and actually uh, physically as well. Because a lot of these behaviors are accompanied by uh, not just you know, psychological distress, they're accompanied by physical health disorders because of what we call allostatic load, right? Which is the wear and tear of stress on the body. So distress really is just bad stress. Right. Stress stress in and of itself could be good. There's something called eustress, which is good stress. Um, and it's good because it can lead to increased resilience, right? So we need stress to grow. Um, but distress... Um, is bad because it uh, negatively affects our health. And the distinction between the two really is um, that distress we feel like we can't tolerate. We try to get away from it. We push back against it. We do all these things to avoid it, which erodes our distress tolerance, right? We're telling ourselves this story that we can't handle it. We can't manage it. We can't feel these feelings, which... um, in a spiral sort of way, erodes our distress tolerance, right? Right. Whereas you, you stress is good because we're telling us the self, ourself the story that um, this is something that will be good for us. This is something that's making us grow. This is going to get me to um, develop these skills and attributes that I want to have in my life, right? There, I should mention, though, that the appraisal that we make between whether or not we can handle something and whether or not we can't is also based on real resources right so sometimes so every person has a different capacity for distress naturally right it's like our capacity for attention Mm -hmm. right some people have attention deficit disorder their capacity for attention is somewhat limited right so for other people as well there are varying natural degrees of emotion regulation and somebody's capacity uh, for a certain distress experience could literally be lower than somebody else's right so we all have different baselines we're starting at but uh, when we give people experiences that give them you know enough enough stress that they are um, tested like it's difficult but they can overcome it and um, 
feel like they accomplished the thing they were trying to do, that increases their distress tolerance or emotion regulation abilities, right? But then also there's like the very real resources. We think about somebody, you know, you could think, think about the distinction between somebody who uh, was raised in um, foster care or somebody who um, has very low support within their own family system right. or has experienced uh, abuse or neglect in their family system, right? Or, or, or maybe just low socioeconomic status. All of those things um, can... Are, are part of how we appraise whether or not we have the capacity or resources to manage manage the stressors that we encounter in our lives, right? right? So we have a stressor, we make this initial appraiser appraisal. Do I have the capacity or resources to manage this stressor? And if we think that we do, and we and we can do it actually, like we do actually have the capacity, that leads us to use stress, which leads us leads us to increased resilience over time, right? If we think that we don't, or we actually don't. That can lead us to distress, which um, leads us into this cycle of stress and coping that tends to further erode our distress tolerance. And that stress and coping, like feeling like we can't handle it, because every single human is going to encounter stress, right? Like every single human. So that feeling, though, that we can't handle it, like do you feel like, everyone will always reach for something or not reach for something, but run away from something and use something as like a crutch or I think it's our natural inclination. And I also think that part of our shared cultural societal narrative is that we should be happy, right? Mm -hmm. That our negative emotions are unhelpful, uh, that we shouldn't be experiencing those. And if we are, we're doing something wrong, so right? Like, like run away from Happiness them. is a choice. Yeah. You just choose to be happy, right? We have these narratives that feed this idea that experiencing distress means something bad about us, right? Right. So I do think society pushes us in so many ways to be distress avoidant. Um, I think it's really common. I think most of us do that Okay. Um, at some point. But that kind of distress avoidance... Um, tends to erode our distress tolerance, right? And of course, we do all experience stress, right? So these this eroding that we see is also accompanied by allostatic load. What is um, allostatic load? So if we think about homeostasis is your body's uh, desire to maintain equilibrium, right? right? Um, allostasis is very similar to that, right? Um, but it allostasis is where we maintain stability through physical changes, right? So those changes that I described, those physical alterations and reward processing system, if you're engaging in compulsive behaviors, that physical change is an allostatic change. It's a structural change to support stability. Um, but it creates this wear and tear. It's, it's kind of like if you think about, if you activate your stress response system, um, what are you experiencing physically? Like what do you notice when you're stressed? Oh, when like you're anxious my or... My stomach is in knots. My, like, heart's racing and I don't know. Like, I just feel like, um, I don't know, you can get, like, sweaty or... Right, exactly. And sometimes in the short term, that's an appropriate response, right? Like if you think about that's your body gathering its resources to react to this stressor. Mm -hmm. So activating your stress response system um, isn't necessarily problematic. Um, but when we activate it and we keep it on, like your parasympathetic nervous system doesn't... Um, How do we keep it on? Like uh, well, so often by... Uh, working to avoid it, right? Engaging okay. these compulsive behaviors, which are reducing our distress uh, tolerance. Um, so we tend to stay in this activated mode. Uh, it could also be that we just are in a super stressful environment, right? If you think about uh, 
you know, a, a refugee fleeing a war-torn country, right? I mean, there's so many factors where <clears throat> their stress response system is going to be staying high because of the physical reality they're experiencing. But sometimes our stress response system stays on um, because we've eroded our capacity for emo emotion regulation and distress tolerance, right? Um, and we engage in all these compulsive behaviors. So the, the ways that we approach the stressors, stressors in our lives um, change our um, allostatic load. So, I mean, a lot of the research that I do is connected to um, mindfulness and how mindfulness changes our capacity um, for things like distress tolerance, attention regulation, emotion regulation, um, and all of those things tend to increase our capacity um, to better use our parasympathetic nervous system, to deactivate our stress response, to relax. To be able to um, just like feel something that's right. and not run from something. That's right. And to sit with the feeling and like let it pass. That's right. Or to be able to deal with it in a healthier way. Yeah, exactly. So at the root of all eating disorders and disordered eating, there's stress. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, when we are using anything in a compulsive way, we're doing it because we're experiencing distress. Right. Yeah. Okay, so... In your experience, what do you feel like, was there a common, like, emotional trigger or stress of an eating disorder? Like, um, I mean, there's a, there's a social context within which, um, I think eating disorders are, um, supported. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and maybe a way to say that is, <clears throat> so... If we think about all of our experiences maybe going through junior high in particular, right? Yeah. Um, but just our in our process of identity formation and self-construction, all of us experience insecurities, right? Right. And insecurity, um, if you're experiencing insecurity about who you are, your personality, um, your intelligence, right, your um, talent – that's that's hard, right? Because those things feel fairly stable to us. They're not actually. Um, those things can change, but they feel more stable. They mm -hmm. feel more true to who we are as a person, right? Right. Your body, we learn, we can change, right? And so, if you focus all of your insecurities on your body, in some way, that's relieving because it feels like there's something you can do about it, mm -hmm. right? There's something that you can change there, and I can use my uh, eating behaviors to alter my body in some way, right? right? So in some sense, when we're thinking about um, body image, I think body image issues really often are tied to Emotional some of these insecurities, right? Okay. And that feels in so many ways um, easier to deal with than all of our other insecurities about who we are. So I mean, I think that's a commonality. There's this thin idealization that we see within the media that I think perpetuates a lot of disordered eating behaviors. Um, and then there's the dieting industry itself, right? The dieting in industry itself, which um, is this huge, you know, multi-billion dollar in industry that is feeding us these nutritionist ideas about what we should and shouldn't eat, right? Mm -hmm. What our body should and shouldn't look like um, that I think absolutely affect uh, the emergence of uh, eating disorders and disordered eating. So why going back to women's roles and like the media and what we feel like is the ideal why do you feel like that exists and why do we all believe it like why do we believe that um I think I think a lot of it has to do with um certainly objectification of women I mean we could get into some 
uh, feminist (laughs) theory conversations about this. Um, But I do think that's a big component of it. Um, Women are associated with beauty, right? Yeah. Um, And I I think when we think about what a successful man looks like, what comes to mind. He's tall. He's big. He's like, he's um, strong. He's domineering. He commands the room. He's um, loud. Like, it's all of those things. I think so. And I think especially wealthy. If he makes money, a man is successful, right? right? Um, And that can be true somewhat for women, but I think women more so are valued often for how they look, Look. right? Mm -hmm. And so if we get to like... If they're small and if they're kind and quiet and sweet and like... And just beautiful, right? And And, you know, beauty obviously is, you know, a fairly subjective determination, but um, I do think that, I mean, getting to like the root of where all these things come from, I think is a... I mean, this could, that could be a very lengthy conversation too, um, but I do think it's a very strong discourse within our society, like big D discourse. And discourses um, are things that um, exist before us, right? Those are things that existed before either one of us were born, right? right? But then we take them up. Mm-hmm. We take them up and we perform them. We perpetuate them. Yeah, the story uh, a, that's told to us that's of right. like thin is better and small is better and that's right. beauty is better than anything. That's right. So we, I, I think it's interesting when you think about just gender. I mean, we perform gender, right? Mm-hmm. When I mean, you think about how you perform being a woman. Yeah. I mean, even just thinking about how we shop, right? Like you walk into maybe a department store and you walk to a women's section, right? right? And they tell you these things are the things that women wear. Right. And some, you know, obviously someone will break those um, barriers across categories. But even something like sm- smells are interesting, right? Like if you walk into um, a department Sephora, store. And with, yeah, and right. the men's section and the women's. And the women's are um, like sweet and flowery. and Right, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting um breakdown of what is feminine and what's masculine right but then we take it up and we wear those things right we put on feminine perfume or something like that to be honest i don't i wear cologne (laughs) liz likes the musky (laughs) like the spicy yeah i love it too (laughs) but we do that right or just thinking about um what you chose potentially for a degree or a, a a job that you take up, right? So many of these things relate to how we perform gender, right? It's so interesting because, um, so when I was in um, school at a university, Liz came and talked to my class and she had this slideshow and I remember her showing us all of these images in the media of, um, I don't know, and it's just interesting if you go like pick up a magazine or the the woman is usually always like behind and lower than the man, right? Like it's like this um I don't even know. I it's something that I never noticed, but like yeah, women are always made to seem kind of like helpless too in like the positions that they're holding or they're they look like weak or or just smaller and I don't know. I it's something that I never noticed until you pointed it out, but once you did, it was kind of shocking. Like the subliminal messages were being fed, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really fascinating too. And I also think that feminist reactions to that, when we think about this like second wave feminism, um, 
how that's interesting too, because kind of what happened when you look at the breakdown, the dichotomy between genders. So men are independent. They are strong, right? They are rational. Um, they are someone who can be, I mean, if we think about um, differences in how we view men and women regarding sexual behaviors, right? That women, men are more sexual, right? That they, um, if, if they're like a player, they're admired in so many ways, right? Totally. Whereas if a woman is, she's, she's a slut. That's right. Yeah. So, so what kind of happened with second wave feminism is that they were saying, you know, women can be all those things too. Women can be independent. Women can be strong. Women can be rational. We don't have to be emotional, right? Women mm-hmm. don't have to stay at home. But so many way, in so many ways, that reinforced the um, prioritization of that mm-hmm. dichotomy. It didn't break down the dichotomy. It's it just said, like, yeah, that is more important. Yeah, that, those things are like, better. Instead of men being softer and men being more That's right. emotional and men being... Yeah. Right. Rather than seeing emotions as being a strength, right? Right. Uh, to be tapped into um, rather than weakness because weakness is associated with femininity, right? right? So I think in a lot of ways that second wave feminism reinforced that these things are better, right? Mm-hmm. These are the things that women can do. And so women can also be, you know, uh, free to do any, you know, have, have as many sexual partners as they want, right? Mm-hmm. They were trying to challenge uh, some of those notions. But in so many ways, it, it, it further devalued everything on that side of the list, right? Totally. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. So I think there's a lot of things that have fed how we perform gender. Um, and I think, I think we're making headway and unpacking a lot of those societal discourses and challenging our own performativity of those discourses. Um, but I do think the way that we approach food, the the way that we approach our own bodies is very much rooted in some of that performativity, right? And you can even hear this, like sometimes I will eavesdrop on conversations where there's like a group of women together. And I'm not saying that only women have disordered eating, men have plenty of disordered eating too. In fact, it's almost equally as common. Um, But um, I'll hear women talking about... um, their latest diet, right? Or or um, self-deprecating talk about their bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just happens so often. It's part of how women speak with each other um, that I think we almost don't even notice it. We don't even notice it's occurring. Right. Which is where, like, disorder... Because I feel like that's all disordered eating, right? Absolutely. So, like, how common... I don't know. You probably don't have, like, a number, but, like, or a percentage. But how common is disordered eating among... All humans, but, like, especially women, because I feel like that's who I'm talking to right now. Yeah, so prevalence reports um, do range pretty widely. Looking at across the body of research, we do see varying uh, estimates. Uh, what I can say is in a recent study, um, and this was um, prevalence reports based on DSM-4 categories, which, again, there was a lowering of threshold of criteria from 4 to 5, okay. right? Um, so it, um, on DSM-4 categories... Um, it was about a third of college-aged women who had a diagnostic eating disorder. Okay. Diagnostic. A third, yeah. A full-blown eating disorder. That's right. Um, and again, going from four to five, there was a lowering of thresholds. So if a third of meeting, a third of women were meeting criteria under DSM-4 categorization. Um, and that's a low estimate. Yeah. Right. Then that's a low estimate. Um, and about one in four college-aged men had a diagnostic eating disorder. So, the, I mean, it was a little bit lower, but it was still pretty high. Um, and you know, I've seen some prevalent studies which have pinned it as low as, uh, 6% uh, as well of college women. So, I mean, there, it's tricky to pin down in so many ways. Um, but if we see those ranges of diagnostic eating disorders, we can know that sub-threshold behaviors are much higher than that too, right? 
And there was a, the, you, you know, remember the Dove campaign? They, they were doing a lot of research, too. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that they did, they, they asked a question related to uh, women's body dissatisfaction. And it was a question that I think was framed um, as, if you could change something about your body, would you? Or something like right. that. Right. Uh, and did everyone say yes? It was like 98%. 98% right. of women who would want to change something about their bodies. Right. Um, which is not surprising, right? right? I mean, if we think about all of the women that we know, all the people that we talk to, um, body dissatisfaction is really high. Totally. Um, and that's connected to how we approach our food, how we approach our eating behaviors as well. So what are some real life examples of disordered eating, would you say? Because I feel like it's, I feel like they're kind of sneaky, right? Because it's tied into like the wellness and diet industry and, but what are some like real life examples that are, I think when you see them, you're like, that's, that's just disordered eating. Uh, well, dieting to me often feels that way. Yeah. <clears throat> that's how I am too. And I get really like uncomfortable when people talk about diets because I'm like, that's not normal. Like that's, it feels like shaming and it feels like you're putting all these rules on yourself that somebody else told you you needed to be following. Absolutely. And we know that diets work in the short term, right? Like you can lose weight by changing what you eat and exercising more, right? So when we think about that uh, energy balance model, which is calories in, calories out, we often think about that when we think about weight. Um, yeah, like that does work in the short term. But what we know consistently across the, the body of research that we have right now is that long-term weight loss is rare right right which is why the dieting industry is still so big try something else and yeah that's right that's right so we see the growth of the dieting industry at the same rate that we see the growth of obesity across our nation right meaning to me that it's not working very well right and we see that on an individual individual level too so we see individuals who lose weight and their body regains that weight, and then the body buffers, right? So it, Because that, it was in scarcity? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So we have these restrictive mentalities about food, which dieting perpetuates. Uh, we tend to see a loss of weight, regain, and then buffering of weight. So we see this increasing trend over time because that pattern happens again and again and again and again, right? Right. Uh, so the, the weight set point is being moved uh, to, the, to the right, right? Um. So I think dieting often for me feels um, disordered. Right. And, and I'm not saying that that's consistently true. I'm not saying that every diet it, for every person is a disordered thing. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but really often we see people in patterns of dieting um, and patterns of um, a lack of self-acceptance, right? right. Um, and that lack of self-acceptance and dieting behaviors – uh, tend to change how our bodies handle the food that we're eating, right? So uh, if you were to approach your eating with a subtractive mentality, meaning there's things that I... Like I'm not going to eat fat, I'm not going to eat sugar. That's right. I'm taking all these things out. Those subtractive mentalities are restrictive mentalities. And, and they, that's disordered. Well, they just... What restrictive mentalities do are they change the ways that our bodies metabolize um, our calories, right? Okay. Um, so it changes our metabolism rate. It changes how our bodies store fat. Um, because when you're in that place, what your body is doing is buffering uh, or preparing for the next stressful experience, mm -hmm. right? So you're teaching your body that it needs to prepare for when this is going to happen again, right? Because right. your body, when it has experiences, learns from that and tries to be able to manage it better in the future, right? right? So there's a lot of research that's been done that shows that 
the ways that our body handles food can be trained early on. In fact, there was this Dutch starvation study that happened because of World War II where this group of people um, were having their calories restricted because they had tried to help the allies. So the Germans cut their calories. So all of these babies who were born or actually who were in utero during this period, they followed up these babies 50 years later and note and saw that compared to those babies who were born before or after this starvation period, this famine, um, they had higher weights, they had higher uh, incidences of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, things like this. Uh, so it was in utero, their bodies were being trained to live in the environment they were um, experiencing right then, right? So they expected, based on that in utero experience, um, that they would need to prepare for a life of famine, right? And dieting can do that to us too. Dieting teaches us that we need to prepare uh, to experience the next famine, right? right? So if we instead approach our food in an uh, additive way, right, I want to increase the amount of food, fruit and vegetables that I'm consuming, uh, that's a very different approach, right? Practically, you could experience it in a very similar way, like what you're actually consuming could be the same, but the mentality with which you approach your food with which you approach your eating absolutely changes the way that your body metabolizes it. So and that just feels like less shame and stress and more just like gratitude and appreciation right for delicious fruits and vegetables right absolutely absolutely so the dieting industry focuses so much on what we eat but really focuses very little on how we eat mm -hmm. who we are as an eater right? right and who we are as an eater mat matters just as much if not more than right. what we eat it doesn't matter yeah it matters less what you eat than what state you're in, what energetic state you're in while you're eating. If That's you're right. in stress, if you're in a, f a place of fear. That's right. Which I feel like if you're believing those stories that society puts on you of like this is good and this is bad and um, while you're eating those things you will feel stressed of like oh, this is going to make me gain weight or like all of those stories, right, that, we, that we've been believing for so long. I, 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 yeah, absolutely. That Which I feel like that's what's going to make you – gain weight because your body's in stress as absolutely. you're eating yeah absolutely I think that we actualize those narratives that we have right right interesting so do you feel like um just also talking about disordered eating um like having a scale in your bathroom and weighing yourself daily do you feel like that's healthy or is that disordered or is that I think it's different for every person right but if the effect is that you judge yourself and on you a daily worth, basis yeah yeah that like, that's oh, I'm worth, not helpful yeah um if you I mean on a daily basis anyway your body experiences fluctuations you're going to see fluctuations that's just the way that bodies work um so there's like a, a range um that you're going to probably flux within that's just natural um I I tend to think that um if you're doing it on a daily basis, it's probably not useful. I think potentially if you're doing it across <clears throat> time points on the same day at about the same time to kind of see like lo more long-term markers, I mean, that could be okay. But in general, if you're using it as a indicator of whether or not you can accept yourself, that's not useful, right? right. So I think it really depends on, again, um, the story that you're bringing to that experience and um, the effects um, mentally and emotionally that it's having on you. Right. So I think that's the self-assessment you have to make. Uh, really often for our uh, eating disorder clients, um, they are not allowed to do that. Um, and, and, and that's, I think that's important. Mm -hmm. um, but if we kind of go back to this uh, 
conversation we're having about stress and coping, there's a lot of ways that we can approach that cycle, right? So we could just try to reduce the amount of stressors that somebody has um, to decrease the amount of times they need to relieve their distress, right? But in so many ways that reinforces their belief that they don't have the capacity or resources to manage it. So sometimes I feel like with eating disorder clients, we remove all of these stressors, right? So we remove mirrors or uh, scales or things like that that can trigger a disordered eating urge or you know uh, thought. And then when they leave care, they re-encounter a lot of these um, triggers, right? Mm -hmm. And it could be maybe at like a doctor's office where they're going to take your weight, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to put you on a scale. And you could ask not to see that. But I think um, I think so often we want to build tolerance to stressors, right? Rather than reinforcing a belief that you can't handle it, I think it's important to also expose people to those stressors in a way that we can increase their tolerance over time. So yeah, maybe when someone's at a really... Um, eroded distress tolerance state, we need to reduce those numbers of stressors, then we gradually reintroduce them, right? Kind of in an exposure therapy kind of a way. We're trying to rebuild that capacity. Because the the reality is, we're going to encounter those things in our world, right? Um, so learning how to um, do that in a way that isn't going to um, activate that cycle for you is important, I think. Okay, so... In talking about um, dealing with these stressors, how do you feel like we best do that? You talked about mindfulness before. What are some like simple examples of mindfulness of how, yeah, how to best deal with the stress that we are going to experience? Um, slowing down, right? So um, one of the things that we've talked about before is this, uh, that slow down diet, yeah, slow right? Down diet. I love that book. <laughs> You guys, I'm going to link that book in the show notes because it's a really, really incredible book. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I think it's super fascinating. Um, but I do think slowing down our experience is really important. There was a really interesting study that was done a number of year ago, years ago that uh, is referred to as the French paradox. And mm-hmm. increasingly, it's becoming less true as France becomes more West, you know, more like right. Americanized. Right. Um, but it was interesting because they were looking at comparative um, diets. Uh, between Americans and the French, uh, the French, yeah. So they were seeing that the French had they weren't necessarily they were, the calories were comparable um, as far as the number of calories, uh, but the French were consuming more fat, more carbs. sugar, uh, yeah, more carbs, All those croissants. Um, more uh, alcohol, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yet their weights tended to be lower. They had lower incidences of cardiovascular disease and other indices um, of health. And so they were trying to figure out why that was, right? And there was a number of things they tried to control for, including, uh, you know, the amount of physical activity um, between the two groups. Um, Also looking at things like um, uh, the source, like, uh, you know, if we're looking at the the amount of, what's the word I'm looking? Um, Processed, processed foods or not, because that's something they thought about as well. Um, but really, what it boiled down to, what they what they came, what they des- decided in the study was that it was how they were approaching their meals, right? So the French meals tended to be slower. They tended to be relational or social. So they were eating with other people. They were taking their time. They were enjoying their food a lot more. They were in stress as they were eating. That's right. That's right. Whereas like the American system is like on the go, quick food, fast food, sit down to dinner, like 
hurry and eat it. We've got to get to work and appointments and yeah. Right, exactly. So I think slowing our food experiences down can facilitate that, right? So eating right. with people, um, but also so we take these mindful pauses before and just check in with ourselves, right? Like how am I feeling right now? Mm-hmm. So we, we do these check-ins. You could do um, mindful breathing or something like that as well. You're just noticing yeah. what's there. Deep breathing um, and noticing how your body's feeling and where all of your organs are at or yeah Yeah, exactly and then that can put you in a place where you can better do some other things including savoring your experiences right Mm -hmm. savoring the food that you're eating Um, and then also potentially needing to reappraise some of your negative thoughts some of your judgments about food right Uh, sometimes when we approach therapy one of the big waves of therapy uh, was cognitive behavior therapy where we say that if you change what you think you can change how you feel and that's true Uh, But so often when we go straight to trying to change our thoughts, we affect what's called thought suppression, which is where we just perpetuate the very thought that we're trying to get rid of, right? Or trying Mm -hmm. to alter. We make it happen more often. So for example, if I tell you to stop thinking about a pink elephant, what's the thought that just popped into your mind? The image. That's right. So, so often we're trying to change our thoughts. We actually perpetuate those very same thoughts. Mindfulness puts us in a place where we can do positive reappraisal in in a much more skillful way. If we start with trying to change our thoughts, Uh, We tend to affect thought suppression, whereas if we first practice mindfulness and acceptance, just letting things be what they are, noticing what's there without trying to change it, then... And accepting it. That's right. right. Just like there's no judgment. Just like seeing what's happening, noticing it, giving space for it, accepting it. Right. right? Exactly. If we do that first, then we can do positive reappraisal in a a much more successful kind of a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, From a strictly Buddhist perspective, any kind of reappraisal um, in some ways is viewed as not mindfulness. But there are different schools of thought um, across the therapeutic world. And my personal view is that you can actually combine them in a really effective way if you learn how to do mindfulness first. So if you first become a mindful person, you can then become a person who's better able to reappraise in really effective ways and, and better able to savor. So I think mindfulness is the starting point. Okay. So can you just take us through like an example of what that would look like for someone who wants to be more mindful when they're eating? So like, what would that look like? You sit down, like you breathe, like what would that? So there's a lot of mindless things that we do when we eat, like right? watching TV. Watching TV tends mm-hmm. to be a really common one. Uh, well, we're not, we're not noticing um, our food experiences, right? We're not no- noticing our our hungerfulness cues, but mm-hmm. also just our emotions, our thoughts, right? Um, we're, we're we're literally kind of um, you know numbing out in so many ways when we're when we're just being entertained um, by TV. So I think trying to reduce those kinds of distractors Mm -hmm. is helpful. Um, I think really often, again, taking a a mindful pause before we even start eating and just checking with our emotional state Mm -hmm. uh, is important. Um, And then if in our eating experiences, we're taking our time, right? So you're putting down your utensil in between bites, right? You are doing it in a hopefully a social forum so you're interacting as you eat as well right because mm-hmm. that's an enjoyable experience hopefully and if you're eating with people who you um don't enjoy being with that's probably not going to be very very helpful um but i think that we want to surround our food experiences um with i think like pleasure pleasure i feel like yeah and that creates joy deep relaxation and your body to be able to be in a place where it can 
digest and assimilate the food, right? Absolutely. I feel like a body that's in stress can't do that. And I feel like going back to that French study, I remember, because you've been to Paris, right? Yeah. Yeah, or France. Um, I remember times in Paris where we'd go to dinner and it was that. It was like, yeah, it was like really like fat and carb and sugar, sugar heavy meals, but like everyone took their time and you just sat down in the restaurant and your waiter was like your friend and and they never ask you to leave and we'd be there for hours just sitting around and eating slow and just breathing and laughing and in no rush to get anywhere it was all about the joy of of eating and experiencing that with with a friend or you know a family member whoever you were with or even alone you know with like a good book or whatever but it there was so much pleasure in that you know that I feel like it makes sense it makes sense why they were healthier and leaner and had less disease absolutely I think it absolutely makes sense there's an interesting study that showed that indulgence feeling like we're indulging in something that we're really um treating ourselves Mm -hmm. changes actually the hormones within our stomach right Mm -hmm. so in a good way or a bad way Uh, yeah in a in a good way so (laughs) there's a study called the milkshake study and what they did was they had these milkshakes that they made that were identical and one they labeled as having lower calories low fat that it was this sensible healthy choice for somebody to make Mm -hmm. and the other one they labeled as really high calorie really high fat really high sugar like really indulgent Mm -hmm. and the people who ate the uh the indulgent milkshake they had lower ghrelin uh, in their systems afterwards. And the uh, ghrelin is a hunger hormone, right, mm-hmm. that your body produces. So when that lowers, your hunger goes down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who are having the sensible one, they their ghrelin levels were still really high. They were still really hungry, um, uh, which is really fascinating to me, right? That, because had the ones that picked the more sensible option, had they moralized food? So they went in with more stress? Or why, why is that? So just because they felt like they weren't... Um, uh, satiated and yeah satiated yeah exactly so if you're sated uh you you, you feel like you've indulged like you've met that mm-hmm. urge that you had or that uh craving that you had mm-hmm. right um when you can satiate that craving uh our bodies feel satisfied right so right. one of the one of the things that um he mentions in the slowdown diet is that it's important to end your meal with something sweet right with right. something that is um this highly pleasurable um food item right Mm -hmm. and I think that's actually important like really being able to savor our food experiences really feeling like we're treating ourselves to something that we enjoy Mm -hmm. um, changes actually the hormones in our system and there's a link also between our microbiome and those uh, uh, those those hunger hormones the leptin and the ghrelin in our system so um, I, I think it's interesting because so often we think that um maybe these these ghrelin and leptin levels are just related to the composition of our microbiome and that's true part of it is related to that but there's this gut brain axis that exists where how we think about things changes how things are operating within our gut and vice versa actually things that are happening within our gut change how we think too right which is why we're starting to see a shift towards things like psychobiotics where people are getting probiotics for depression and anxiety and things like that interesting too. so there's this really interesting industry. axis um, that is starting to be researched more heavily. But what we know for sure is how we think about our food changes those hormones within our system, right. which are driving craving, right? right? That's really interesting. I feel like um, just like the chemistry of your body will change, right, with how you're thinking about Absolutely. food. So like if you're in 
a state of gratitude, your body chemistry will be different than if you're in a state of fear. Like if you're fearing what you eat. And that's kind of why I that's hate absolutely true. when people talk about um, if they're like on a strict diet, but they're like, I have, I give myself every Friday is like a cheat day, right? Like I hate that, like a cheat day, just because I feel like it already puts your body in a state of fear. Like you're so strict all week and then on Friday, you have a cheat day where you get to eat pizza and ice cream and whatever. And I feel like in that state, you're not, I don't know, I just feel like you're going into it with like this like fear and like scarcity mentality. And I feel like the act of doing that, it's like, it's not doing you any good. I feel like you're, right? Like the chemistry of your body is different. Plus you have the whole like scarcity thing that your body's experiencing and it, it feels deprived. And so it wants to hold on to everything. Like, I just feel like it's, the worst recipe right absolutely yeah absolutely and I get like I get when people feel motivated to lose weight right there's a lot of negative health effects that are associated with uh, weight Um, although you know there are a lot of cases where we can see healthy fat and really unhealthy skinny bodies right so those aren't like it's not easy to see somebody and see their health right we think that we know that when we see somebody but it's not actually how it works Um, but I do understand desires to lose weight um, but if we approach weight loss from that dieting perspective, um, it just doesn't tend to be effective um, in, so many, in so many ways um, over time. I had a student this last semester, uh, one of my grad students, who I was talking about these additive versus subtractive mentalities, and she told me at the end of the semester she thought it was bull. She was like, no way will that work. Um, but she, she decided to try it anyway. So she didn't uh, go on a diet. She didn't change what she was, how she was exercising or moving around or anything like that. Uh, she just started to uh, apply this additive um, principle, this additive philosophy. And over the course of the semester, she lost, I think she said 20 pounds, um, which she was so surprised by. She was so stunned by. And she um, talked about this experience later. Um, in, in, uh, it was an email she sent to me afterwards where she felt like, um, that she had been at this um, point for so long in her life where she just felt stuck, that anything that she tried, any dieting approach that she uh, tried to apply <clears throat> wasn't effective for her, right? So she just almost had given up on the prospect of losing weight, which I think happens so often for people who have been through these cycles because so many times. Because dieting doesn't work. Yeah. That's right, which it doesn't work, right, um, in so many ways. Um, but if we alter our perspective, the way that we think about these things, our bodies um, absolutely can adjust. We can actually lose weight, right? And we can maintain weight loss. Right. We just have to go about it in a different way. And this is a really interesting correlate to our emotional experiences as well. <clears throat> because so often, if we, if we approach um, health with weight loss being the goal, we're almost going to fail at the outset in so 100%. many ways, right? If that's the goal... Uh, we can achieve it in the short term, but it's not going to be working for us in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if we approach um, our bodies in a loving, accepting way, right, and we are seeking to fill our bodies with good things, right, mm-hmm. versus take away all the bad things, mm-hmm. uh, that's a very different approach that can be very successful long term. Now, this works the same with emotions, right? If we think so many people come into therapy and their goal is to feel better. I do not want to feel these things anymore, mm-hmm. right? If that's your goal... You will almost fail. fail at the outset, yeah. right? And if therapists engage with somebody in that being the goal of therapy, it is not going to be effective, right? It can be the outcome. You can feel better by going through therapy, right? You can lose weight. Um, 
But if it's the initial goal, that's problematic, right? Right. Instead of wanting to feel better, we want to become better feelers. We want to feel better. Mm -hmm. I want to learn how to feel and experience the entire range of my emotions, Right. right? And not run from any of them. That's right. Right. That's right. And then the effect of being a better feeler is that we actually feel better, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it, it can't be the goal. If it's the goal, um, it fuels so many of our distress avoidance behaviors that have really created the problems that we're experiencing. Right. That's so interesting and makes perfect sense. Um, so your student lost weight. Yeah, and she told her friend about it as well, that she, this, that she'd had this experience. And her friend, I think, over the holiday break um, between the two semesters um, had already, I think, lost uh, 10 pounds or something like that. Which is crazy. But it's something that I believe in because I feel like that happened to me myself. Like, I – because you were the first person who ever told me about intuitive eating, right? Like, I had never heard that concept before. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. But I think same thing for me when I – shifted and thought about how I felt when I ate things and just kept going back to like how I felt I feel like your body naturally knows what it needs right like our bodies are really smart like our guts are really smart there's all these little brains in our bodies and so I feel like if you're intuitively um seeking what your body needs and what it wants I feel like you will be healthy and I feel like that that should never be the goal is to lose weight, but just to feel better, to um, to focus on wellness, to be able to like fuel your body and heal your body with food, right? Absolutely. Um, okay, so I want to talk about intuitive eating yeah. and have you explain that whole concept and process. So from a pretty early age, we're taught to not be intuitive eaters, right? right? It's like your parents put down your plate of food and say, eat all that and eat four bites of this and right right? exactly if you think if you've ever had the experience of feeding a baby food like once they've kind of shifted into solids right Mm -hmm. and you're trying to force this spoon into their mouth if they don't want it if they don't like it if they're not hungry they are not eating that food right right? like their babies are pretty intuitive eaters they know when they're hungry right it's not a schedule that's convenient for you right right um but we learn how to be very regimented we learn how much to eat we learn when to eat right three meals a day that's right and at at this time right like you go you're going to school you have your lunch hour right then that's when you're going to eat right whether or not you're hungry hungry or not Um, so we do a pretty good job of training ourselves to not notice and pay attention to our body's cues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so relearning how to be an intuitive eater, how to listen to those hunger fullness cues, le- listen to what our body really needs, what it enjoys, what it wants, um, that takes practice. That takes some time. When we first get people into um, treatment for an eating disorder, they can't go straight from having an eating disorder to being an intuitive eater. It just doesn't work that way, Right. It takes a lot of retraining, a lot of relearning. Um, But it starts, again, just by slowing down, by paying attention to what's going on. So if you are first practicing mindful practices, mindful breathing, noticing what's going on without trying to change it, um, that's a good way to start um, before you then try to apply mindful eating um, into your uh, meals as well. So starting to learn how to be mindful, learn how to do mindfulness uh, separate from food, separate from eating, then you can bring those practices of... Um, being able to flexibly 
flexibly shift your attention, being able to shift into this metacognitive state, which is you above your thoughts. It's you noticing your thoughts. It's you noticing your emotions. You are not your thoughts. You are not your emotions, right? Right. You're the Metacognition is above that. Mm -hmm. That's right. So learning how to bring those skills into your food experiences um, is how we get into intuitive eating, how we learn how to then notice those cues that are still there within your body. You've just quieted them for so long that you don't even notice that they're there, right? Right. Okay, so I want to also talk a little bit about the moralization of food because I feel like you can get on the internet or buy any of books from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever and there's all of these conflicting theories about what's best. Like you can read fantastic literature about the benefits of a paleo diet or how eating and ketosis is going to heal your body or um, the Atkins or a vegan diet or raw plant-based or all of these different diets, right? And there's all of, there's all this like well-documented research about why certain things are better. So how do you have all of these opinions from doctors and scientists and all of these nutritionists be surrounding you, but still trust in your own intuition and what you're deciding to eat that's a really good question um certainly i think there's obviously validity to a lot of that research i'm not going to say sit here and say that uh, those things are all wrong that's not that's not accurate um but really often the effect of relying on external sources to tell you what to and not to eat it builds anxiety around our food um it builds anxiety around our eating behaviors um and reduces the trust that we have in ourselves and our own intuition, right? So if the effect of relying on all of that is that you don't feel intuitive, you can't listen to yourself, you don't think that your body's cues are accurate, that's really unhelpful. Um, and I think that when you are an intuitive eater, I think you can also start to explore some of that literature in a more uh, intuitive way, right? You can certainly try things. And if you have already become practice at listening to your own intuition, you can feel whether or not that feels right for you. Because the reality is all of those things are not working for everybody, right? In any of those studies that you read, there is no 100%, right? Right. Every individual is a different eater. They have different um, needs. They have different um, palates, right? They have different diets that are best for their particular body. Um, So thinking that there's a one-size-fits-all is completely inaccurate, inaccurate, right? So you need intuition to be able to sift through all of those um, external sources. Right. Which is what I love about intuitive eating because ultimately, like, we are the experts for our bodies, right? Like, we are the experts. And I think that's why I hate diets and rules and all of these things because I don't think our diet should be a math equation, right? Of, like counting calories or counting all of like the macros right like I just think your body intuitively knows what it needs and what it wants it takes like a lot of trust right like building trust with yourself and your body um but I feel like living by someone else's rules is where we go off the course for ourselves right absolutely absolutely and I think too we have to recognize that our bodies change over time right that something that felt good for you at one point in your life doesn't always feel good for you because we're not stagnant beings we're beings of progression right so it's constantly checking in with ourselves and saying like yeah that that worked last month but like this month you know this isn't working or absolutely it's like 
that same approach with like diets of like every day you eat this for breakfast and this for lunch and this for dinner, but it's, that's not, that's not how we work as human beings, right? Every day is different and every day we need something different and different nutrients and different ingredients to make our bodies well. Absolutely. The variety in our micro and macronutrients is really important, but also just the variety is important for our enjoyment, right? We, we get, um, (laughs) really bored with the same, um, food day in, day out. And that doesn't facilitate the kind of, uh, savoring experiences that we were talking about before. Right. Definitely. Okay. So let's talk about something that I've heard rumors of but I want to know is true. Can people have full-blown addictions to food, addictions to eating? So there's a lot of controversy about this within the literature. The addiction uh, world is very um, influenced by substance abuse, right? Substance use disorders. Um, And so because of that, a lot of behavioral addictions like eating – have been there's there's been a lot of pushback on whether or not those are actually addictions and there's a couple hallmarks of addiction which could include something like um uh tolerance right so when you um have an amount of a drug you need more and more and more of it over time to have the same effect Uh, we tend to see that with disordered eating behaviors as well right we tend to see that somebody um who has binging behaviors has to binge the, the intensity, frequency, or duration for them has to increase for them to have the same distress-relieving effects, right? Um, we also, the addiction world also believes in um, that another hallmark of addiction is something is withdrawal. Um, and we tend to see, again, these behavioral withdrawals for eating disorder patients as well. So there's certainly clinically a lot of support for seeing that eating disorders are addictive. Disordered eating behaviors are addictive. Now, there's a question of whether or not it's a food addiction, an addiction to a particular micro or macronutrient uh, like fat or like sugar. What about sugar, sugar though? Because I feel like a lot of people are like sugar is addictive. It triggers the same spot in your brain, you know? Yeah, so there are there are foods that are naturally rewarding, right? Um, and that's they give absolutely you that high. true, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so it's kind of the dual process that I was talking about before, where you can have a substance that's naturally rewarding on its own that's going to activate your reward processing system, but then when you're using it in a compulsive way where you're relieving distress, it's like this two pronged um, power punch, right? That is really um, effective right? Effective at making you feel better. Effective at you getting rid of the things you don't want to be feeling, right? right? So is sugar naturally rewarding? Absolutely. I think we've all experienced that, right? Is fat naturally rewarding? Absolutely. I think we've experienced that. Um, so at some level that there's truth to that, but my perspective about it is that it's the behavior, it's the compulsion of how we're engaging in our eating that is what becomes addictive, right? Right. Um, and there's a lot of research to support my perspective here, the, what I'm arguing for. And there's also uh, researchers who believe that it's just a macro uh, or micro uh, nutrient addiction, that it's just the addiction to that particular substance, kind of how we would view addiction to opioids in the same way, right? Mm-hmm. But even with opioids, it's an interesting comparison because so many um, opioid misusers right now um, are chronic pain patients, right? And they're using opioids to get away from experiences of physical pain, right? Mm-hmm. So they're using in a compulsive way, and the compulsion, the compulsion to use that or any other thing that helps them to feel better 
um, is what really perpetuates their use. Um, there are examples, in fact, there's been studies that demonstrated that a lot of Vietnam vets who were using significant uh, psychotropic drugs while they were deployed came back and quit cold turkey and were fine, right? How? So we have this perspective that drugs have a hook, that they hook us in. Um, but there is some interesting research that demonstrates that it's not necessarily the substance in and of itself that perpetuates the, ex- the addiction. It's um, what you're running it's the en- from. Yeah, it's yeah. the environment. It's mm-hmm. either the... So, for example, there was an animal model study that was showing that uh, rats, when they were given the option, um, I think in this case they were using heroin, I want to say, something like that. Um, so they could either... They could... They could use this heroin water or their other food and they would they would uh, use the heroin water to the point of killing themselves right they would just like use and use and use and use and use and just die um and so they believe that uh when they initially looked at this uh research that the heroin was the thing that was creating this addictive behavior Um, but then they changed the environment for the rats so instead of having one rat in a cage by itself uh, with the only thing to entertain it being the heroin water, they put them into this um, environment, uh, this rat park, right, where they had other rats they could uh, play with or have sex with, right? Um, they had uh, toys in this environment. They had a, their, you know, the food for them to eat. In this environment, almost no rats were using the heroin water. Mm-hmm. Um, they just weren't interested in it, right? right? So there was something different about the two environments um, that was perpetuating the addiction, right? So we could see sugar in the same way, like this hook, that once we like get addicted to it, we can't let go. But there's something about the environment that we exist in that's perpetuating those behaviors, right? That's increasing our distress or making us feel like we can't tolerate um, our own lives. We can't live with ourselves. We can't live in our families. We can't, you know, whatever it is. Right. So uh, my perspective about it is that um, disordered eating absolutely um, is addictive, but it's the behaviors themselves, not the foods in particular, that are driving uh, the addiction. Us engaging in those behaviors in a compulsive way. Okay. I love that. And it makes sense. Okay. So say there's women out there or a woman out there who feels controlled by food or controlled with this um, compulsive type of eating or not eating or whatever, what message would you have for her if she's wanting to take back her power, right? And like not be controlled by this anymore. Yeah, first and foremost, I would say that change is absolutely possible. I am in the business of change and I absolutely have witnessed changes occur. I've experienced that within myself um, and within the clients that I've treated. Change is absolutely possible and it begins with acceptance of your current experiences, your current state, right? Right. So uh, I think so much of the work that I do initially with clients um, is helping them to be willing to feel uh, be willing to be honest with themselves about the lives that they have, right? About their current uh, relationships within their current relationship with themselves. Uh, we're unpacking all of those things. Um, I think that it requires uh, vulnerability. Um, and a lot of compassion for yourself, absolutely. right? Compassion absolutely. and like empathy and not bringing shame into it. Absolutely. Which I think so often when we're vulnerable, I mean, Brene Brown talks about this often, right? That when we are willing to bring light to the things that we tend to keep secret, um, it eradicates shame, right? It right. dismantles it. So I think when we're willing to share, when we're willing to be open, when we're willing to be transparent and be our authentic selves, 
uh, that breaks down shame, right? So I think uh, so many things that I've heard you talk on this podcast about, I think are so important, right? Um, to be to be able to build a better relationship with ourselves. Because I think that's really where uh, the work uh, needs to occur when we're talking about disordered eating. We need to build better relationships with ourselves. Right, and where true change comes from, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, I love that. Okay, last question. If someone feels like they do need help and they're trying to figure out how to change disordered eating or an eating disorder, where is the best place to find help for that? If you're if you're talking about, um, in fact, if you're if you're interested in professional help, I would say find a local therapist. Right? If you need a higher level of care, they will determine that, they will assess that, and they will refer you to a higher level of care. I think if you haven't already been in therapy, I think it's a good place to start. Uh, my perspective about therapists is that there's a lot of really great therapists and there's a lot of crappy ones. So don't feel bad about doing some shopping around. Find somebody who's a good fit for you. I, I am obviously biased because I am a therapist, but I think anybody can benefit from time in therapy, whether or not you think you have an eating disorder or not. I think it's just a helpful way. You cannot therapize yourself. I am a therapist and I've been to a therapist, right? Right. You cannot just turn that mirror around and see yourself in a way that is going to help you to shift the way that you're thinking about yourself and the world around you, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think having that outside perspective is really important. And a therapist is a good way to do it because they are this um, impartial third party, right? right? They're not your uh, friend. They're not your parent. They're not your spouse. Um, they're not invested in this in, in, a, in a way that is going to create uh, some emotional, um, you know, signals that are going to be unhelpful to you in your process of unpacking yourself. So I'd recommend that, honestly. Um, I wouldn't say you necessarily need to go to an eating disorder specialist treatment center right away. I would start with your local therapist and they can let you know if they think that you may need um, higher care, higher support. Uh, Really often when we're talking about a diagnostic eating disorder, they're sticky, right? I mean, on average, uh, when we look at the research, eating disorders take uh, seven years to recover from, right? Um, Why? After treatment. Because they are, if we think about substance use, right, there's things that you can do to limit your contact with a world that triggers your substance use, right? Right. Maybe Don't go to a bar anymore. <laughs> right. Right. But you eat all the time. You have to eat, right? right? So you're encountering food mm-hmm. constantly. Um, and we're surrounded by all these cultural messages that really reinforce body dissatisfaction, poor body image, and those kinds of things. Um, so they're sticky uh, among all kinds of compulsive behaviors. Um, they're often also not viewed as being problematic, right? Uh, we can see them as being pretty normal mm-hmm. because so many people have disordered eating relationships or disordered uh, relationships with their bodies. We don't see it as being a problem, right? Um, so really often I think there's a lack of awareness about eating disorders as well, um, that can perpetuate them, but they do, they, they can be sticky. So the sooner, the sooner you seek out support, um, uh, the easier it is, the longer you've been in your eating disorder, the harder, harder it is, uh, to heal. And that's true almost with anything, right? Um, when we've been engaging in something for a really long time, we've really reinforced those pathways within our brain in a way that are hard, uh, to, um, restructure, but we can, what we know about the brain is that it's plastic throughout your entire life. 
Uh, you could be in your 80s and your brain is still plastic, right? Your brain is the most plastic when you're a child, right? When you're an infant. Right. That's the most plastic time of your brain. Um, but your brain continues to be changeable throughout your life. So change is always possible. Okay. Do you think it's wise, like, if you feel like – because I know you said going to a therapist who isn't your family, who isn't your friend, who can see it objectively or see you objectively or the issues. But do you think it's ever wise to tell a friend or a family member or someone you trust about what's going on with your relationship with food? Absolutely, especially if you're somebody who feels like you experience shame. Because what we know about shame is that, again, the more light we can bring to it, uh, the more it's dismantled. So um, if you think about how many people in your life know everything about you, um, sometimes when we have somebody who's experiencing insecurity, right, um, if there's nobody in their life who knows everything about them, um, they can always tell themselves the story that if people really knew me, they wouldn't love, they wouldn't me. love me. Yeah. Right? So that being unlovable or unworthy, uh, those core beliefs that exist within so many people are really dis- they're really difficult to dismantle if somebody is not in your inner circle who, who knows everything about you and loves you anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So the more people you can bring into that inner circle, the better. It, boundaries are still helpful, right? Don't tell everybody everything. Uh, that's really not... Um, going to help you to (laughs) always build um, healthy relationships, right? I think it's important to have some boundaries, um, but we do need multiple people in that inner circle with us that helps us to uh, really dismantle those unhelpful core beliefs. Okay. I've said last question probably five times. This is my real last question. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you feel like is the best way or what is the best way to – kind of dismantle the societal belief that like thin is better or that I should be looking a certain way or um, I need to chase after some ideal that I maybe will never be, right? What's the best way to just practice self-acceptance and self-love? I'm a big fan of uh, metta, which is loving kindness meditation. I think it helps us to generate loving kindness for ourselves. How do you how do you do a meta meditation? Uh, you can find a lot of free ones online. Um, one of the women uh, who I met when I was at the uh, Social Research Institute for the Mind and Life Institute. It was this um, you know gathering of uh, researchers, intellectuals, active uh, Buddhist practitioners. Uh, this woman named Sharon Salzberg was there, and she brought really meta meditation initially to the United States. Um, and she, there's plenty of free ones you can find from Sharon Salzberg online. But really, essentially, what you're doing is you're starting with yourself. You're sending loving kindness to yourself. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Um, it could be something like, may you be happy. May mm-hmm. you be well. Right? You're saying that to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so you start with these phrases, these mantras that you're saying to yourself. And then you say to somebody that you love a lot. And you're extending that gradually out to people that you have a hard time with. Right? So you're generating these loving kindness feelings uh, for yourself and for the world around you. Um, and I love it. One of the first times that I was trained in uh, Meta was at this um, uh, research institute. And I remember afterwards, because it was in New York, uh, kind of a little bit, kind of across the river from... Um, Uh, West Point, actually, at the Garrison Institute. And afterwards, I went into the city. um, And I met you, actually, afterwards, if you remember. 
Uh, we stayed with Mel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I initially, when I walked into the city, was just practicing this meta as I walked around. I remember one of my first times in New York feeling like I was alone in a city of people, right? Like yeah. you're just surrounded by people and not connecting with anybody, right? right? And this time, I left this week of meditation and research and everything and went back into the city and was practicing this walking meta meditation. Just sending everyone loving Yeah, and kindness. I felt connected to everybody. It was this totally different experience in the city, and I loved it. It was awesome. Um, so I think that's a helpful way. So, And also, thinking about how we approach love with ourselves, uh, don't start with the parts of you that are, hard, or that are the hardest for you to love. So just like you extend those concentric circles of love uh, from yourself to the person that you love the most, who you know love you, then maybe to some like neutral people in your life and then to people that you have a hard time with, it's like a concentric circle, right? Mm -hmm. You do the same thing with yourself. You don't start with trying to love the parts of yourself that you have the most hard time with. You start with loving the parts of you um, that, that are the easiest for you to love, right? And then you're gradually extending that out. So when you're doing those self examinations, um, start with a small list of the things that you really love about you. Um, and then gradually you can start to extend love and acceptance out to those other parts of you that are harder for you to love. Perfect. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for being on the show today and sharing all of your wisdom with us. Yeah, I'm happy to be on. I, uh, <laughs> certainly have a lot of things that I'm still learning. Um, but I love Cafe Binge, and I think that the, the things that you're working to put out into the world are good things. <laughs> well, thank you, Liz. Good positive energy. <laughs> well, thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Cafe Binge podcast. Until next time, may you notice all the wonderful, beautiful, binge-worthy parts of your day. Squeeze out every last drop. Taste them cherish them because life was meant to be beautiful find me at cafebinge.com or on instagram at cafebinge take me out to cafe binge tonight